But let's open God's Word together to the book of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 3. And we begin in verse 21. You can follow along there in your Bible, or if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, the Scripture's on the screens there. And this is the Holy Word of God. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsi, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah the son of Joanne, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur. I guess that's all that they could come up with. <laughs> Ur, which makes email addresses a little easier, right? Ur at gmail.com. It's rather less complicated than the long Pastor Blankenship at laurelbaptistchurch.com. The son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Maleah, the son of Minnah, the son of Matthiah, or Mattath, but yeah, you got it. The son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah. I don't know why every time I read that name I think of salsa. I, maybe it's because I love Mexican food. Salah, the son of Nashan, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac. The son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sereg, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Calan, the son of Arphad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Our text begins in verse 21 this morning with crowds of people being baptized by John. This was a major part of John's ministry. After all, he is nicknamed John the Baptist, or as he's often called, John the Baptizer. That's what is meant by the nickname, 
John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. Now, it is an interesting observation to ask ourselves, why was John baptizing people at this point in history? Especially when Christ had not yet died and rose again. We often think of baptism as a post-resurrection identification with Christ. That is why we get baptized. We get baptized because of the symbolism of how it identifies us with what Christ has done through his death, burial, and resurrection. So again, if that is the case in the teaching of the New Testament, why is it that John is baptizing others before Christ even begins his earthly ministry? Well, it's important to understand a little context here. And that is the Jews did indeed practice a baptismal ceremony as a ritual cleansing of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who were turning to the Jewish faith. They were turning to Judaism. And so these non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, that's how the Bible outlines them for us. You have Jews and then the rest of us who are Gentiles. That when Gentiles would come to Jewish faith or to Judaism, they would practice this ritual cleansing of their filthiness in order to be seen as a clean people before God. So baptism was familiar to the people, although natural born Jews were not themselves baptized, only the Gentiles. Now, John's ministry of baptism was different. Verse 3 of Luke chapter 3 tells us that his baptism was a baptism of repentance for all people, including Jews. That his baptism was not just for the Gentiles, his baptism was for the Jews. So as John preached the coming gospel of the Christ, he would call all people... Uh, Jews and Gentiles alike, to repent of their sin and by faith trust in the coming arrival of the Messiah. And those who then were baptized uh, did so as a demonstration of their personal faith in the coming of the Christ as well as a demonstration of their repentance of sin. That's why Matthew tells us in his account, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 6, it says, and they were baptized by John in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so as they came to be baptized, they were declaring that they have repented of their sin and that they were looking for the coming of Christ. This is why John was baptizing. But then the next question is, why Jesus If John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, then why did Jesus submit himself to such baptism? Jesus was and is sinless. He was and is perfectly righteous. He had no need for a baptism of repentance. For there was no sin in him. And since there was no sin in him, there was no reason for him to repent. Furthermore, 
He is the Christ. He is the one that John had preached about in whom he called all the people, Jews and Gentiles alike, to come and place their faith. Remember the declaration John made the day Jesus came out to the riverbanks? You'll find this in John chapter 1 and verse 29. When he sees Jesus coming, John from the riverbanks cries out, Look! Behold! Here he is! The Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I've been telling you about. This is the one that I've been preaching about. The Christ, the Messiah. So in our understanding of the nature of Christ, he is the Messiah. He has no sin that needs repenting of. So we see... No need for him to be baptized. Yet, verse 21 in Luke 3 says that as all the people were being baptized, Jesus also was baptized. Now we're going to walk through several things this morning, but let me summarize it all into one simple statement. You say, oh, that's great. Just give us the summary and we'll go home. Well, no, that wouldn't be appropriate Bible study. You don't need to take my word for it. You need to see what the Word of God says. But here's the simple summary. Jesus was baptized in order to demonstrate to Israel that he was the Savior they were waiting for. Jesus was baptized in order to demonstrate to Israel that he was the Savior, he was the Christ, he was the Messiah, that they were waiting for. Let's break it down from our text. Four things I want you to see. When Jesus was baptized, first of all, it symbolically identified him with the wrath he would endure for sinners. When Jesus was baptized, it symbolically identified him with the wrath he would endure for sinners. Verse 21 says, all the people were baptized and Jesus also. Jesus joined the others in baptism because it symbolized what he had come to do for others. In Matthew's account, chapter 3 and verse 15, Jesus said to John, when John was saying, look, look, you don't need to be baptized. Uh, uh, you should baptize me. I don't need to be baptizing you. But Jesus looked at John and he said, look, we have to do this. We have to do this because in doing it, it will fulfill, this is the quote there in Matthew 3, it will fulfill all righteousness. John, we have to because this is going to show to the world that I have come to bring righteousness to sinners and the symbolism of baptism is how I will bring that righteousness to sinners. You see, uh, Jesus' baptism was not a baptism of repentance. Jesus' baptism was a baptism of identification. He did not come to John confessing and repenting sin. He came to give righteousness to those who will confess and repent of sin. Let's think about it in terms of why we are baptized today. Christian baptism 
is the public declaration that we have confessed our sins in repentance and put our faith in Christ's righteousness alone to save us from the judgment of sin. That's what Christian baptism is. A public declaration, a symbolism, an identification that we have confessed our sins in repentance, put our faith in Christ's righteousness alone to save us from God's judgment over sin. So when we submit ourselves to believers' baptism, it signifies three very important things. It signifies our identity with Christ. It signifies our cleansing from sin. And it signifies our commitment to Christ's church. This is the practice and purpose of Christian baptism in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus commanded believers to be baptized. Matthew 28 and verse 19, Go, therefore, make disciples out of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But again, why baptism? What is it about standing in the water, going under the water, coming back out of the water? What is it about that procedure that God has chosen for it to formally declare our faith and identity as Christians? Is it not enough to just tell people we're Christians? Is it not enough to just say that way? But why does he choose this mode of baptism to formally Profess our faith in Christ. Well, we have to remember why Jesus came. Uh, Luke chapter 9, let's just stay in Luke. Jesus said this to his disciples, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, be killed, and on the third day be raised. That's why Jesus came. He came to seek and to save sinners. And to save sinners, he must be rejected, he must be killed, and he will rise again. This is the gospel. Whether you're here for the thousandth time or the first time, you need to hear clearly the gospel of Jesus this morning, that God became a man that he lived a perfect, sinless life, that he died a sacrificial death in the place of sinners, that he was buried in a borrowed tomb for three days, and that he rose again from the dead, giving us salvation through faith in him. That's the gospel. Jesus came to take upon himself God's wrath for sin so that we who put our faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior will receive his righteousness in the place of our unrighteousness, thereby saving us from the eternal judgment of sin. So baptism by immersion pictures both the wrath that Jesus endured, as well as the victory that he won. When Jesus was baptized, it symbolized his identity. It symbolized what he came to do in order to save sinners. So, when we're standing up in the water, that represents the death of Christ. Uh, in fact... Keegan, would you come here just for a moment since you look very engaged into the sermon this morning? 
Keegan's been baptized. I will not tell you what he did in the water on the day of his baptism. It's a memory that both of us want to forget. When he's standing in the water, this represents the death of Christ. When we take them under, this represents the burial of Christ. Now, we don't leave them under for multiple reasons. One, we don't want to get sued. Secondly, because Christ did not stay dead. He rose again from the dead. And so this is the gospel. Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again. He was buried. He rose again. I could get used to this. This is wonderful. All right, go sit down. Romans 6, 4 tells us, we were buried with him in baptism unto death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when we are baptized, we are declaring our repentance of sin and our identification with what Christ has done on our behalf through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection. And when Jesus was baptized, he was identifying with us as the Savior who had come to take our wrath, to die in our place, to be buried in our stead, and to rise again so that we who believe in him will rise again in new life. Now, baptism doesn't save us any more than it did not carry out the work of redemption. I want you to think about that. Put your theological caps on for a moment. Just getting into the water and going under and coming back up doesn't make you a Christian. It's faith that makes you a Christian. It's trusting Jesus Christ that makes you a Christian. The baptism is just a symbol of that. It it symbolizes for us what we have done by putting our faith in Christ. Same thing with Christ. It was not enough for him to go to the Jordan River and get baptized and we're all able to be forgiven of our sins. No, it was just a symbol of what he had to do. What he had to do. Christ had to actually do what his baptism symbolized. He had to die. We must actually believe in our hearts what the baptism symbolizes. Remember, it's a wedding ring. A wedding ring doesn't make you married just because you put it on. No, the wedding ring is a symbol identifying us with the one whom we've entered into covenant with. And so it is in our relationship with Christ. Baptism identifies us with the Lord. And the Lord has identified with us. So when Jesus was baptized, it symbolically identified him with the wrath that he would endure for sinners. Secondly, it publicly showed the Trinitarian nature of God. It publicly showed the Trinitarian nature of God. Verse 21 tells us, What Jesus was doing when all of this took place. It's it's fascinating that Luke just kind of throws this in here. As he was being baptized, look at it there in verse 21. He was praying. He was praying. Without question, even a brief study of the life of Jesus would show us very quickly that he was devoted to prayer. Jesus was devoted to prayer. Especially in defining moments. He prayed before choosing his disciples. He prayed before important moments of teaching. 
He prayed at the transfiguration. He prayed when he commissioned the disciples. He prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. He prayed while he was dying on the cross. Jesus is our perfect example in learning how to pray. And as his followers, it's important that we devote ourselves to the practice of prayer. Think about it. If it was essential for Jesus to pray, who is praying for us even right now on the right hand of the Father, how much more necessary is it for we who follow him to be bathed in prayer? So Jesus is praying while he's being baptized. And while this is happening, something incredible takes place. The triune God, and by triune God, we mean God as a trinity. I'll explain it in just a moment. The triune God reveals himself from heaven to earth. All right, let's talk about the triune God for just a moment. The trinity. What does it mean, the trinity? Well, the trinity is the understanding that there is one God existing in three persons. There are not three gods. There is one single God existing as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And at Jesus' baptism, all the persons of the Godhead are present Well, we see God the Son is being baptized. Here's Jesus standing in the River Jordan, and he is God in the flesh, and he's being baptized. And while God the Son is being baptized, we see God the Holy Spirit show up. And the Bible says that God the Holy Spirit descends on God the Son like a dove, like a dove. Matthew's account says it rested on Jesus. John's account said he remained on Jesus. Luke says here in our text that he descended. He rested. He remained. He descended. I think it is very important language to our understanding of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a force that we try to get a hold of. It's not a force that we capture ourselves. No, the Holy Spirit is a person who gets a hold of us. It's a person who captures us. It's a person that descends upon us and rests on us and remains on us as we put our faith in Jesus Christ. But why dove? Why did the Holy Spirit just come so eloquently and peacefully flowing down like a, like a dove? Well, Jesus has different images of himself in the Scriptures. He most certainly is the Lion of Judah. As the sovereign ruler of his kingdom, he will judge all unrighteousness. He is certainly that. But what do we know him as in his ministry? We know him as the Lamb, the Lamb of God. It may very well be that the dove is chosen here in symbolism of his nature, the character of his earthly ministry. He's gentle. He's lowly. He's meek. He's humble. 
He is quick to give us mercy and compassion. He is graciously patient, not wanting anyone to perish under judgment. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, A dove, you know, is the most meek and the most innocent of all birds, without gall, without talons, having no fierceness in it, expressing nothing but love and friendship. Accordingly, a dove was a most fit emblem of the Spirit that was poured out upon our Savior as he entered the work of our salvation, a work of meekness and gentleness. You see, the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus like a dove is a reminder of his earthly ministry to sinners. Gentleness toward us, meekness toward us, compassionate toward us. Well, let's not get away from the triune God here. We have, we have God the Son being baptized, God the Holy Spirit descending, and then we have God the Father speaking. He speaks audibly from heaven about His Son. The verse says here, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well. In this vocal declaration from heaven, God the Father steps out and announces that Jesus is indeed his beloved Son. It is an amazing Trinitarian moment. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's why we baptize in the same manner. I baptize you this morning in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is such a monumental occasion that all three persons of the Godhead, the fullness of God in the Trinity, revealed together that this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah who has come to save sinners. And yet, amazingly, they are all one God. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And here collectively together, we see the Trinitarian nature of God. What a monumental moment. Well, thirdly, when Jesus was baptized, it not only symbolically identified him with the wrath that he would endure, it publicly showed the Trinitarian nature of God. Thirdly, it clearly revealed what truly pleases the Father. It truly revealed, or it clearly revealed what truly pleases the Father. Now, let's go back to this voice for just a moment. Verse 22, God the Father rings out from heaven, and he says about Jesus, Jesus, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Do you wish this morning to know what pleases God today? Well, let me tell you what pleases God. It is His Son that pleases Him. God the Father is fully pleased. God the Father is perfectly satisfied in His Son, Jesus Christ. So God tells us to look to Jesus. And in Jesus, we will find everything that pleases God. We will find all that pleases God the Father. Think about it in terms of where we are at this point in His earthly ministry. 
God the Father was no doubt pleased by his humble incarnation. He was pleased by his perfect, sinless life through which he fully adhered to and fulfilled every iota of the law of God. He was pleased by the perfect harmony and communion that he has with his son. He was pleased by his obedient death and righteously taking the place of unrighteous sinners. He was pleased when he rose again from the dead. God the Father is fully pleased in Jesus Christ. But what does that mean for us? Well, it is only in his son Jesus that God the Father will ever be fully pleased with us. Now, I need you to think about that this morning. It is only in Jesus that God the Father will ever be fully pleased with you. You want to know how to please God today? How can I satisfy His wrath and judgment for my sin? How is it that I can make God happy so whatever bad things that I'm trying to wish away may not happen to me? Well, that pleasure is only found in Jesus. Any attempt to please God outside of resting in the saving lordship of Jesus Christ is futile. It is impossible. Listen to me this morning. I'm trying to help you come to Christ. It is impossible, absolutely impossible, to please God on your own. You can never please God without being found in Christ. Hebrews 11, 6 says, without faith, and the implication here is in Jesus, without faith in Jesus, it is impossible to please God. Why? Because of our sin. Because of our sin, God can never be pleased with us. He knows everything about us. He knows the wickedness of our hearts. He knows the failings of our flesh. He knows the deepest intents of our thoughts. He knows what nobody else knows about you. He knows it all. He even knows what's going to happen with your life tomorrow. He can never be pleased with us because of our sin. But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, He covers our unrighteousness with His perfect righteousness. And in whom God sees the perfect righteousness of His Son, Jesus, He is henceforth, forevermore, pleased with that person. The question is this morning, are you in Christ? Is Christ in you? For where Christ is, God is pleased. Where Christ is not, God is not satisfied. You see, if you are in Christ... If you are in Christ because you have put your faith in him, God looks at you today and he's fully pleased. He's fully pleased. Just as he proclaimed from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If you have put your faith in Christ, he cries out from heaven, you are my beloved son. You are beloved my daughter. You may be ugly as all get out, but you are my beloved child. And in you, and in you, I am fully pleased. You know why? Because he doesn't see us. He sees Jesus. 
You see, I haven't done anything to please God. Jesus, thankfully, did everything that was necessary to please him. And by his grace, he empowers me, an unrighteous, wicked sinner, to enter into a reconciled relationship with God. Not because of what I have done, but because of what he has done. God doesn't see, receive me today as being pleased on my account. I am received because of Christ's account, because of what Christ has done for me. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. So God looks out this morning to those who have received Jesus as their Lord, to those who have put their faith in him as their Savior, and he says, I am fully and completely pleased with you because of Christ. And isn't that wonderfully comforting? Because there are a lot of voices out there that ring in my ear every day that says, God's not happy with you. God's not happy with you. God's angry with you. God is going to condemn you for what you've done. Am I the only one that ever hears voices like that? I hear them every day. God's angry at you. God's mad at you. God is going to condemn you. But Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those voices are lies. God's not angry with you. You're in Christ. He's pleased with you. God's not going to condemn you. You're in Christ. He's pleased with you. Put out those voices. Resist them. Ignore them. Wherever Christ is, God is fully pleased. Tabidi Anyabwile said, all of our comfort, security before God, joy in his presence, sense of safety, delight, it all comes from his marvelous statement that we hear from heaven, that Jesus is God's son and God is pleased with him. Therefore, if you are in him through faith, God is forever pleased with you. You see, when God voiced from heaven his perfect pleasure in Jesus, he was fully declaring that no one on earth is unsavable if they're found in Christ. No one on earth is unsavable if you're found in Christ. Oh, you don't know me. I don't know you. And guess what? You don't know me. There is not a person on this earth no matter what they've done and who they are, that is unsavable if they will just find themselves by faith in Christ. Because even the most wicked among us, God is pleased when he sees Jesus. All of this is an important part of his baptism. To show us what really pleases God. Not all these things that you're hoping to do to get his attention. God says you're just wasting your time. You, you got to just trust the one who did it all. Because that's the only thing that's going to please me. All right, let me give you one more. I know you've been regretting this because you're thinking, is he going to go through every single name on this list? <laughs> well, let me just say number four here. That when Jesus was baptized, it officially launched his earthly ministry. 
When Jesus was baptized, it officially launched his earthly ministry. Look at verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, which is directly following his baptism, when he began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age. So a lot of time's gone by, hasn't it, since we've seen Jesus as that 12-year-old boy in the temple confounding the teachers. He's now 30. He's been baptized. And 30 years have passed. 30 years of fulfilling in the quiet and modest routines of Jewish life. 30 years of fulfilling precisely everything that pleased the Father. Three decades now of incarnation are gone. Three decades of sinless perfection have moved through time. And now through his baptism, the time has come for him to go public as the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. From this point forward in our study of Luke, we see the ministry of Jesus beginning. Beginning. Well, in concluding this, Luke takes some time to point out the genealogy of Christ. But let me just say here, genealogies are extremely important, especially in Jewish culture and history. They prove who was Jewish and who wasn't, which is extremely important to understanding God's covenant people. It also proved who was and who was not a son of David, which was also extremely important to the promise God made that the Messiah would come through the line of David. Furthermore, it just shows the historical reliability of the people that we read about in the Bible. And we've mentioned this a lot in our study of Luke, and I'll say it again because it bears repeating, that once again, these are not stories of fiction. These are stories of fact. This is not fantasy. This is reliable history. And those genealogies throughout the Old and New Testament prove that to us. These genealogies are given to us as a matter of public record, that these people actually exist. And this was the framework in which Jesus went about his ministry. Now, Bible students, and I'm not going to do it this morning, will immediately recognize some of the differences between Luke's genealogy of Christ and Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. The major difference is that Matthew's genealogy is abbreviated, while Luke's genealogy is more exhaustive. The other major difference is that Matthew's genealogy traces the line of Joseph, okay, his earthly father. And Luke's genealogy traces the line of Mary, his mother. But both genealogies prove that Jesus was virgin born. Both of them prove to us that his Messiahship was through the line of Mary, which ultimately ends in God himself. It shows us that Jesus not only came from the line of David, but he also came from Adam. And that he ultimately came from God. In fact, you see that in the very last verse, verse 38. All of it culminates in that last phrase. He is the son of Adam, the son of God. Who is Jesus, the son of Adam, the son of God, the son of Adam, the son of God? Now think about that for a moment. He is the son of Adam, the first man, in that he willingly took on incarnate flesh. That's what makes him the son of Adam. He he became a man, which means that in the person of Jesus, he can redeem man because he is a man. But he's not just a man. Because in order to redeem man, he must also be the perfect son of God. 
So what Luke tells us is, yes, he's the son of, son of Adam. He was a man, but he's also the son of God. He is God himself. And both are in, intricately important to understanding how it is that Jesus was able to save us from our sins. Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. In Adam, we all die. But in Christ, we are all made alive. The first Adam brought sin and death, but the second Adam brought salvation and life. And so Luke makes it clear, Jesus is the son of Adam, he is the son of God, the only one qualified to bring salvation to sinners. And it is that ministry of salvation, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God. That ministry is what Jesus launches here in Luke chapter 3. Now in closing, we've looked at Luke chapter 3 for at least two, maybe three weeks. I think it's been two. And we've heard a lot of people talking. Now follow this with me. We've heard in Luke chapter 3 what John the Baptist said about Jesus. We've heard what God the Father said about Jesus. We've even heard what the genealogies say about Jesus. But here's the question. What do you say about Jesus? What do you say about Jesus today? Because the truth is before us. What John said is true. What God said is true. What the genealogies show is true. But will you speak the truth this morning? Will you trust the gospel of Jesus Christ, believe in who he is and what he has come to do for you by following him as your Lord and Savior? That's the gospel. It is recognizing that I am far too unrighteous to do anything to save myself. So I need someone who is perfectly righteous. And who is perfectly righteous? None other than Jesus Christ, the son of Adam. The Son of God. What do you say about him? A good teacher? He certainly was that, but he was not just that. A good prophet? Absolutely, but not just that. A religious leader? Sure, but not just that. No, no, no. For his righteousness to cover your life, you must say about him what John says about him. He's the Lamb of God who's taken away my sins. (laughs) You must say what God says about him. He is the Christ in whom all salvation is fulfilled. I am in him. He is in me. You have to say what the genealogies say about him. That he was real and that he died. He rose again so that I could be forgiven of my sin. What do you say? And when you say that, the Bible commands you to publicly declare it. Don't miss that point of this passage. If Jesus himself went to the links to be baptized, why in the world would you not? If you believe that he is the one who has come to save you, then declare that faith. Identify with Christ by getting baptized. And I promise you I'll be a lot more gentle with you than I was with my son. In whom I am sometimes pleased. (laughs) 
Say to your family. Say to the world. Say to God. I am trusting your death and your burial and your resurrection as my only hope in life. This is the gospel. Repent of your sin. Believe the gospel and follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. For all of this is perfectly fulfilled. As we see Jesus coming down to the riverbanks of Jordan. Looking to John and perhaps saying, you got time for me? I'd like to be baptized too. Oh, may God help us, draw us as our individual needs exist in his perfect omniscience. Let's stand together for prayer this morning.